have a weird sermon title today, huh? You know, we spend, un- unashamedly, we spend our time here, as we should, talking about Jesus and doing our best to present good and reasonable and compelling arguments for people to become followers of Christ. And that's not really going to change. But I was thinking this week uh, about some of the things that I was given as reasons to become a follower of Christ back in the early, early and mid-70s that have turned out to be, well, it just didn't turn out to be that way. Uh, the things that were promised and the things I was encouraged, encouraged to do and think, and this is a great, you need to become a Christian because boom, 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 fill in the blank. And uh, ever since then I've been realizing, well, <laughs> That was a great motivation, but it was a bait and switch. It wasn't necessarily true. It wasn't like, like they told me it was going to be. Uh, for instance, I was recently on a, a retreat with some of the, one of the men's groups that I'm with, and we were sitting in, <laughs> we have tough retreats at Marin Covenant. We were sitting in the hot tub up in Tahoe one night. It was a Marin-style retreat. And we were sitting like seven men sitting in there, uh, talking about life and talking about our faith and um, talking about the difference between what we thought we were getting into when we followed Jesus back in the day and what we've discovered ever since. And there was a, a considerable amount of discussion about, was ah, it didn't turn out the way they said. Like somebody said uh, uh, something like, well, you, you know, uh, we were promised that life would be so much easier following Jesus. And I realized, I was promised that too, but actually when I think about it, my life became more difficult when I followed Jesus. Because the standard, when you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we talk about moving toward a life in Christ, and Christ being, his lifestyle being the, uh, the, the goal for us, and the challenges of Scripture that should be mature as God is mature and be complete. And here's Jesus, the example of what humans were supposed to be like. That's God's dream for us. Forgiving and full of justice and humble and servants and all these things. I thought, that that wasn't an easier life. My life was easier before I had such a rigorous standard and such an unapproachable goal, to be honest with you. It was easier just to be lazy. It was easier not to have to address the inconsistent, the, the, um, insecurities that I've been living with to bandage up the scars that were formed in my life and the little lies and pretentious things that I did just to survive every day and to live with that kind of craziness. That was easier because there was no standard. But to be asked as an adult to come and identify the things that are broken in me and address them and defeat them, that's painful stuff. That's like ripping off scab from an old wound. My life was easier before I was a Christian. It wasn't better. It wasn't richer, it wasn't more substantial, it wasn't more meaningful, but it was easier. And when the whole question of financial wealth, one of our brothers was saying, I was told, you know, if I give generously, the Lord's going to give back to me 10 times over, 100 times over, fold it up, whatever, whatever. I don't know about you, but when I chose to obey Jesus and follow Jesus into the ministry, the pastor, I chose to make less money, not more. Now, you are very generous, so none of us has a complaint about that here, but not all churches are like Marin Covenant. I didn't, 
I chose to have less money, not more, because there's this challenge to be generous and be investing your life in people and your finances and every aspect of your wealth. So that was a bait and switch. That was, that's not a reason to become a Christian. When I really thought about what it meant financially and for my career as a follower of Jesus, those were reasons to not become a Christian if I really thought about it. But we're spending our time here trying to talk you into becoming a Christian. We're not ashamed of it. We want to present reasons to people that come and are a part of our church to consider following Jesus. But every once in a while, we've got to be honest about <laughs> there may be some reasons not to follow Jesus. And today, I want to present one of those reasons. You might not want to become a Christian. My friend Javier Montiel is one of the members of our church, and we chat once in a while. He's a wonderful, brilliant cartoonist and an excellent artist and a very creative person. And so one of his favorite people in all of history is Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. And we got to talking about that. He's sharing me some of Leonardo's stuff. You know, man, Javier, that's intriguing to me. I want to learn more about Leonardo. So he got me a book, Javier did, uh, How to Think Like Leonardo Da Vinci. And in this book, uh, it introduces seven principles that governed Leonardo's life. And in this book, Number four is called in Latin, sfumato. What it literally means is up in smoke. There's vacancy. Things are nebulous. It's not everything is concrete and provable. There's tension. There's tension from differences, the ability to embrace uh, ambiguity and paradox and uncertainty and, and comfort, comfort with things that are really different, with competing thoughts. So you have this idea of living with disparity and living with tension and living with the complexity of competing thoughts, all of which could be true at the same time. And da Vinci was committed to that, called it sfumato, this idea of living with a need for things that are concrete, but in the context of a cultural vapor, of environmental vapor, of, of, of competing Thoughts. Not everything is certain, yet we're still committed to things of which we're convinced. And his argument was that the greater a person's ability to live with that kind of tension in health, the deeper and more mature the person is. That's one of those seven principles, and I became fascinated with that principle as a Christian, from a Christian perspective. Now, da Vinci was certainly no champion of Christian orthodoxy, although he was brilliant and should be appreciated for his brilliance and his appreciation for beauty. But at this point, at least with that principle that he was living by, I'm convinced that he was right in step with Jesus. Because Christianity requires us to embrace the ambiguity of diversity. To figure out unity amid differences. And if we don't have a Christian context of differences, we really don't have a truly, fully Christ-like context. We're required to figure that out. Not just to be tolerant of it, but to be at peace with that. Not simply comfortable with it. Not tenaciously, not just occasionally all right with it, not because culture says it's politically correct, we have to do that, but tenaciously committed to that kind of diversity, a context that we protect, that we, we, we don't just protect and endorse it, we actually uh, seek it 
demand it, insist upon it like Jesus did, of differences. If you think you can walk with Jesus without also walking with, not just tolerating, engaging with, walking with, connecting with, living life with people who look different, who see the world differently, who vote differently, even read the Bible differently than you, then think again. Because if you can't get your head around that, folks, you might not want to be a Christian. If you can't understand, and I'll just talk about the liberal and even, I mean, solid biblical Christians, if, you can't, if we can't understand the fact that the king we follow is more important than the president we voted for, then what's the point of us gathering to follow anyone at all? We are a room full of differences. We must be a room full of differences. We are a family of differences with different tastes and different opinions and different understandings and different ways of living. And we look differently and we've experienced different things in life. And we come together according to the example of Jesus and we are the body of Christ. And if we can't be that, might not want to consider following Christ because that's where Jesus is fixing to take us. Does that, does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? Okay, so, so far it's just me saying it. Yep, Leonardo had it right, and he was right in line with Jesus, but let me try to prove it, show you some examples of where this comes from. If you turn to John chapter 4, we have the well-known story of the woman at the well. Jesus encountering the woman at the well. Here's the first point I want to make. We see Jesus crossing boundaries. So Christ crossed boundaries that forced his followers to deal with diversity. And this is just one example of many. If you go back and reread the life of Christ, reread the Gospels, you're going to see Jesus doing this all the time. It's like, sameness is not okay with me, you guys. We've got to move into differences. Listen, Jesus in John chapter 4 learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the baptizer, although in fact he was not, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go, verse 4, through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And I'm saying he took his disciples' places that forced them to deal with differences. And I'm especially taken with that phrase, he had to. See, here you have Jesus crossing all kinds of boundaries, and he's certainly crossing political boundaries. So let's Let's engage with those even who see politics differently and economics differently and all sorts of things differently. He steps over political boundaries. The phrase is, he had to. But the sense of the word that's used there is that he should have. Not he had to because there was no other way to get where he wanted to go. There was something in his heart that required him not to use the other options. There were other options. People would have normally gone around Samaria. Jews would have. But Jesus 
because his heart was so committed to engaging and leading people into engagement with the discomfort of differences, the sense is he, he knew that he should. He found it necessary to go through Samaria. It wasn't necessary, but in his heart it was necessary. There's this sense of determined obligation right from his heart. He couldn't not go that way because of what he wanted, what he wanted his disciples to encounter. In verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? So they go into Samaria, into this town. Disciples go into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and not just a Samaritan, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? It's too intimate. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, oh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would, given you, he would have given you living water. Jesus steps over political boundaries, and Jesus steps over gender boundaries to reach this Samaritan woman. And note the confusion of his disciples when they return later on in verse 27. Then the disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a what? A Samaritan? That's not enough that he's talk, talking with a woman. Like they, they're, they're creeping up and they're, what, what, what's going on? Like he's talking to a woman. There's no one else here. He's breaking every stinking rule there is to break. It's not enough he brings us into Samaria when we could have gone around. There's this political thing that we're crossing here and this line, and now he's talking to a woman by himself. There's nobody escorted, and she's probably not the most pure woman. In the... And here again, Jesus is saying, step over the boundaries and engage with people and think differently and don't be afraid of difference. In fact, you're going to see later that he requires that of his church. And there are all kinds of differences. Look at what's said later on in the chapter. Sir, the woman says in this conversation before verse 27, but up in 19, they have this conversation, so I'm retracting. I'm going before the apostles came back, the disciples came back. They have this conversation. The woman says, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time's coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and hopefully you just experienced a little bit of it in that rich worship time. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Both at the same time, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So you've got Jesus stepping over this line of political boundaries and gender boundaries, and now he's stepping across the line of theological and worship uh, boundaries and worship differences. If you look in Matthew 28, remember Matthew 28, the great commission at the end where Jesus says, just before he's, the ascension, he says to his followers, this is after he's died and resurrected, and now he stayed for a month or a little more, and then he's going up to heaven now. And they're all gathered together to give him a send-off, and he says... All power has been given to me, and I want you to go into all the earth 
and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, but make disciples of all people. But you know how that translates really? Make disciples of all ethnos, all ethnicities. But Lord, that's going to be harder to follow you there. It's harder to have to walk through Samaria. It's harder to have to cross those gender, awkward gender boundaries. It's, it's harder to be able to be able to worship with people, some of whom want to raise their hands, some of whom think they should never raise their hands, some of whom are engineers that are coming to worship, and some of whom are mystics who can't understand how an engineer could even worship. It's harder to do that. It's harder in diversity. It's harder to be different. Pastors would say it's harder to keep the church together and to cause it to grow when you have so much difference. It's easier if everybody's the same color and the same political party and thinks the same way politically. And Jesus says, yes, it's easier that way, and it's wrong. It's not my plan. It's not my heart. Jesus led his disciples Across lines that most people would have run from. He said, go and make disciples of all ethnicities. And that command was heeded by Christ's followers, thankfully. They reached out to the Samaritans and it cost them their families. They reached out to different ethnic groups and nations and it cost them their lives. Look, Jesus was about nothing. Get this, he was about nothing if he wasn't about leading his followers into the ambiguity and tension of a diverse community of disciples. And a church that won't follow him in that commitment, as awkward and difficult and rigorous as that is, is also about nothing worth being about. If you expect to be able to be a Christian without sharing that conviction, or worse yet, opposing that conviction, then you're mistaken. That's how you feel? Christianity probably isn't for you. You might not want to become a Christian. Because Jesus crossed those barriers and led his disciples across them. Second and final point. It's from the Gospel of John as well, but chapter 13. So Jesus, my first point, crosses boundaries and forces those who follow him to also cross them. There's something healthy there he has for us. Secondly, I think the reason he does it is that the power of love is best displayed in the context of diversity. There is no power in a unity that's the result of sameness. There's tremendous power in a unity that shouldn't be able to happen. That can only be explained by one thing. John chapter 13, I take you to verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But the context of that statement is what gives power to the statement. It also gives us understanding of the force of the statement. Jesus spoke those words to his disciples at one of their riskiest times. Everything was coming apart when he spoke those. The context, he had gathered them for the Last Supper. He had washed their feet. They struggled with him washing their feet. 
it's, uh, he reveals to them in that context, remember that one of them is going to betray them, so they've got that on their mind. So he's just washed their feet, they were uncomfortable with that. Peter actually said, you're not washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. Jesus says, if you won't let me wash your feet, if you won't let me serve you, you have no place with me. And Peter says, oh, oh within my whole body, then not just my feet. Jesus said, you've already been washed. I, I just need to clean your feet, wash your feet. That's the context. And then at dinner, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now put yourself in that dinner. I mean, how does that feel? You've just sort of watched him humble himself, and then he serves everybody, and then he's teaching, and he says, I'm going to be betrayed by someone whose feet I just finished washing. And then nobody's really knowing who it was, I think, until Peter says, you know, I'm never going to deny, I'm never going to leave you. You can, all these others may betray you, but you can count on me. And I don't remember, I may be wrong, but I don't remember the text ever saying that Jesus pulled Peter over to him so only Peter could hear it. And he said, you know, by the way, as a matter of fact, before the morning sun rises, you're going to deny me three times. I think he said that so everybody could hear. So You've got foot washing. You've got Peter saying, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus rebuking him. You've got them sitting down to dinner. And at the dinner, he's saying, one of you will betray me. And Peter says, it's not going to be me. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to, you're going to deny you even knew me before morning. What do you think the rest of them are thinking? It's Peter. Dude, Peter. That's, that's just a guess on my part, but it makes sense. But my point isn't that. My point is to say this is a time of tension. And Jesus is speaking, by the way, to a group that seems to have been formed in order to guarantee failure. The power of love is best displayed in the context of diversity. And you have all of that tension to a group that's Design, you, none of us would put a team together like the team Jesus put together. None of us would. It's made up of two or three special interest groups and a few contrarian loners. Like, that's not how you build a team. Andrew and Peter were brothers. James and John, brothers. Philip and Nathaniel, uh, they were friends. And Philip was perhaps also a friend of Andrew and Peter. Then you have James the last and June, Jude, cousins of Jesus. So Joseph's brother was their dad. Judas Iscariot, no other words need to be said, whom none of them trusted. You have Thomas, a disgruntled contrarian who actually left them after Jesus died. If he's going to go to Jerusalem, let's go with, go with him and die too. That's how things are. He's the Eeyore. He's the... You have Simon the Zealot, a Jewish terrorist who was committed to stopping Roman um, oppression, and he was especially frustrated with his own people when they sold out to use Roman power to oppress their own people. That was He hated them the most. And then you have one of those Jews that did that, Matthew, a Jewish tax collector who sold his own people out to make a profit with Rome's support. Matthew and Simon should have never been able to sleep around the same fire without one of them waking up dead. I mean, who builds a team like that, Jeff? Yeah. Didn't we experience that a little bit when somebody, when some of our friends heard that 
Jeff Mazzarello's coming back here to be one of our pastors, and Greco's there. We, we got that from some of our Christian friends. You guys will never, those two, never be able to work together. I think they were wrong. I love him. And here's the point. Jesus, in that context, got all that understanding, says, if you guys can have love for one another, all the world will know that you are my disciples. Why? Because that should never work. That can't work. Disgruntled people, different people, different families, cousins, people vying. I mean, you have one of them, the mother comes and says, hey, when you enter your kingdom, can my sons, those two right there, you, not you guys, you two over here, can they sit at your right hand, at your left hand? You've got even the mom being involved. How does that feel to everybody else that hears it? In fact, we don't have to guess. Scripture tells us they became disgruntled about that. What a stinking mess. And Jesus says, the world looks at this team and says, don't even worry about him. That could never fail. They're too different. There's too much diversity, too much up in smokeness. And then Jesus says, aha, but if you can love each other, mm, there's power in that. That's because the love that God has for us, the power of it, I said it's best displayed. I want to change that. It's only displayed, really, in great diversity. So this idea of going up in smoke isn't just a nice thing for a church to have. It's a necessary thing. It's an obligation. It's a must-do, according to Jesus. And if you aren't willing to get your head around that, you might want to face the fact that becoming a Christian just isn't for you. Christ modeled diversity by crossing boundaries, and his love is shown primarily and maybe exclusively the true power of it in the context of significant diversity, significant differences. A pastor, in 1980. In 1880, excuse me, uh, the denomination that we are a part of was formed. They had a bunch of Swedish immigrants who got together and they were loosely emotionally connected, but they decided we're going to organize into a denomination. We're going to have standards and guidelines and, and a strategy. And they got together for an initial meeting where they met in Chicago. And one of their pastors, F.M. Johnson, preached from Psalm 119. And this, this foundational statement, this formative statement for our denomination, and it really talks about what I'm challenging us around today, was in that sermon. He said, I am the companion of all who fear thee and those who keep thy precepts. He doesn't say, I agree with all who fear thee and keep thy precepts. He said, I am a companion of all who fear thee? That's the one vetting question. There's this diverse group of people. When it comes down to it, we're not going to say, how did you vote? Where do you live? How high did, how high did you go in your education? 
How are your kids behaving? Where do you live? How big is your house? What do you drive? We're going to say, whom do you love? Who is your king? And if you can say, my king is Jesus, I serve Jesus, however imperfectly, then he was arguing for what has become the hallmark of this fellowship, that I'm your companion because so do I. I'm the companion of all those who fear thee and who keep thy precepts. Red and yellow, black and white, loud and quiet, left and right. If you serve Christ, I'm your companion. If you love Jesus, even if the way you love him looks different than the way I love him, man, we're together. We're in the same family. And that's the point I want to make this morning. If you are not willing to be reconstructed, to be increasingly committed to diversity, diversity, I'm not saying it's comfortable. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not comfortable, nor is it easy. It's a constant process of, oh, I just discovered this thing in me, God, and I don't like it, but I'm used to it, and it works for me, and it shouldn't even be in me. You've got to do something about that. Let's work together on that because I don't like what just came out of my mouth, and I don't like what I just felt in my heart that thankfully did not come out of my mouth. But change me if you're not willing to be reconstructed, to be increasingly committed to diversity. Diverse forms of worship, diverse political and theological voices, diverse types of leaders, different ways of viewing the world, then Christianity might not be for you. And a true Jesus-following Christian church might not be for you. If you can't get your head around a church that's full of differences, that should never be able to survive, then you might not want to become a Christian because that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, all of you. That's what the angels meant when they said, the, they said to the shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. A great joy will be for all the people. There's a Savior that's come for you. If you can't get around that, Christianity might not be for you. But if, on the other hand, that's exactly the person you long to be. If, on the other hand, you say, oh, if only there could be a Christian community like that. Well, then, that's a different consideration altogether, isn't it? No diversity, no risk, no discomfort, no theological difference, no ethnic difference, no political difference, no economic difference, no educational difference, no gender inclusion, no Christian church. Do you get it? Do you get it? But oh, the power and the greatness that awaits a fellowship of people who are mature enough to say, we can live like that. In fact, we long to. Great things are going to happen in a church like that. Let's pray. Our God, we are thinking today about something that seems not possible 
too rigorous, too high, too difficult. Many of us would say, I'm not even step one toward that yet, if the truth be known. But then there's this other piece of us that says, oh, if only the world could look like that. World, if only a church could look like that. A church, if only my church could look like that. Where no wild thought was too wild and so wild that they would be excluded. Make us that church, oh God. We want to be that church. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your reconstructive work through us. Here we are, Lord, San Marin Covenant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.